Hi, this is Megan Davis, and you're listening to Stories Create Me, a podcast that explores the stories that we tell that make up our present day and eventually are going to influence our future. Each month, I explore a topic with a special guest. The topic varies, but the sentiment is always the same. The stories we tell become our future. And so, won't you join us as this narrative unfolds? In this episode, I speak with Jamie Skella. Jamie Skella is involved in a variety of projects, most of them involving blockchain. He's the chief product officer for Horizon State and the executive director for MyVote. We'll talk a bit more about his work, but for now, I'd love to jump straight into this interview with Jamie. So, Jamie, one of the posts that I read recently on LinkedIn was, most predictions of our future are wrong. Yeah, I think historically, every futurist has had a very hard time uh, accurately predicting the future. Um, some of the inventions that have changed our world in the most profound ways, um, completely unexpected, Danny. But um, I think the consensus is generally that the cost of not guessing uh, is probably higher than guessing wrong. At least from a perspective of a futurist, it's not even really your job to understand what the absolute future is, but to uh, to try and uh, evaluate what is going on in the world right now and try and understand what the horizons might look like uh, and compare businesses and societies for those futures. Blockchain, as an example, is going to play a significant role in the future of humanity and how society organizes itself, but the details aren't necessarily clear. There's a saying that you need to be sort of firm on the vision, but flexible on the details. In regards to my, my current project at Horizon State, I don't think we're actually looking too far ahead into the future. It's almost an incredibly immediate and, and practical use of the technology, which is that we have um, an irreversible, irremutable, perfectly accountable and transparent ledger. The first time ever this is possible. So, of course, those kinds of traits uh, also make great ones for a, for a digital voting system where it's important that we can't um, nefariously change uh, the outcome in any corrupt way. I think that's interesting that you've said that a futurist is not somebody who's there to predict the future, but rather someone who's there to compare possible outcomes. Ultimately, uh, what we're doing is kind of simple. In terms of how we're using this technology for societal good and improving the status quo, what we're kind of doing conceptually is, is, uh, is decentralizing the ballot box both technically speaking and practically. And so from a practical perspective, it means that you as, a, as an end user, as a resident or a citizen, you're able to participate in your democratic process uh, remotely in a decentralized fashion, which um, means in the developed world, we have the opportunity to increase participation uh, because it's more convenient um, and increase uh, the quality of information and how that information is disseminated. Um, Helping nations, it's important because sometimes going to a polling booth can be a matter of life or death, unfortunately. That is uh, mm. the reality in some places. And so there's a very uh, practical and tangible benefit to uh, enabling remote participation. Uh, from a technical perspective, um, we are decentralizing the ballot box in the sense that we deliver trust in our system by having no government or no institution or no individual, uh, certainly not Horizon State. We don't, we don't own the ballot box. We don't own the record of the results. Um, it's, it's, it's truly owned by everybody, but kind of owned by nobody. And this is what uh, creates 
and the opportunity for immutable and irreversible properties. It can't be changed because technically nobody owns it. In the same way that you can't create fraudulent uh, Bitcoin transactions or change uh, the Bitcoin uh, distributed ledger to, to reflect your own reality, uh, it is in fact a shared reality. Thinking a little bit bigger beyond our application, which is, as I, as I said, I think is a relatively simple one in the big scheme of things. This, this uh, concept of decentralization and disintermediation uh, is really quite exciting. There's, there's um, a lot of opportunity here on the horizon to, uh, to, to dethrone some current power bases, uh, both economic and capital ones, but also um, cultural and societal ones, and, and redistribute a little bit of power and a little bit of wealth uh, and try and create a more uh, equal world for everybody. You know, you recently um, commented on LinkedIn that to not want to redistribute wealth lacks imagination. In regards to redistributing wealth and the possibilities that opens up, that that is about creating a different narrative for democracy. Because I think the current one, as you're saying, is that, that it that it isn't for everyone, that it's owned by certain power structures. So it might be owned by lobbyists or it might be owned by the person who can who can make the highest bid for the attention of the politicians, and and now if that becomes irrelevant, uh, we we truly are in a space where power lies in the hands of the people, and we are the true decision makers. Fundamentally, the sorts of issues we're seeing in democracy and politics um, more broadly. Um, ultimately, the, the root cause there is, is capitalism as it exists today. Uh, now, I'm mm. not necessarily uh, anti-capitalist, but I, I kind of believe that uh, capitalism uh, is the, the cause of all our, our problems, but also, so far, has been um, the solution to many problems. So we sort of have a, a feedback loop here where, where capitalism destroys and, and creates um, in, in pretty spectacular ways. Um, but, of course, uh, equality and wealth distribution, um, you know, these are, these are far bigger and broader topics as well. But that, that sort of tweet or that, that LinkedIn post that I made specifically was really just thinking um, about uh, the child that I'm about to have in, in, a, in a few minutes' time uh, and mm. the sort of world that I'd uh, love to see her grow up in um, and the sorts of people that I'd love to see her surrounded by. And, and um, coming from a, um, a not-so-privileged family in a relatively poor area of the country, um, it became very apparent to me very fast that um, living paycheck to paycheck is, is quite inhibiting and even um, based on real research, um, living paycheck to paycheck uh, actually has sort of an IQ handicap of around 10 points. So just the, the cognitive burden of needing to uh, worry about uh, your financial position um, is, is a big deal. And so when you mm. start to create opportunities for, for wealth distribution, and, and bringing the poor up, everybody benefits, including the rich, because all of a sudden society is filled with uh, people that aren't so miserable, people that can afford to uh, enjoy leisure in more meaningful ways, people that have the time to pursue ideas and be innovative, um, and just uh, as a byproduct of, of um, having um, less financial hardship, they are quite literally smarter for it as well. Parts of that makes me think about some current conversations, or uh, I'll dip into the word narrative again, um, narratives around artificial intelligence, and that, um, you know, there's a lot of people talking about how perhaps if we have another 
sentient form or system for handling the mundane and the day-to-day or the things that are repetitive. It frees us up to to do so many more things and, and, and new jobs will be created because they'll become this next level that we have to go to to explore what we're actually able to achieve because our, we won't be thinking about the, I guess, ticking the boxes or creating the categories or comparing multiple outcomes because something else will be able to do that much faster than we are currently able to. Is Do you think about things like this much as well or? We've seen these incredible uh, exponential improvements around the time of you know the Industrial Revolution. There was a lot of talk that um, this would mean that we could move from things like 10-hour days to, to working only a few hours a day or maybe a few hours a week. But of course, uh, humans are innately creative. And, and again, uh, on the theme of capitalism, we are somewhat greedy. And so instead of um, maintaining, a, I guess, a steady pace, um, we've continued to accelerate on an exponential curve by making use of every spare moment that is ever uh, available to us to continue to push the needle further and, and further and further. And so this doesn't seem to be slowing down. Um, mm. But in the, in the near future, it does certainly look like um, AI um, and intelligent augmentation, in fact, is going to free up um, humans to be um, more human, I suppose, and do the things uh, that um, are more meaningful, meaningfully human uh, into the future. Um, mm. But because of this, because of this exponential pace, there is a risk, of course, that um, uh, unlike previous sort of uh, revolutions, uh, considering maybe there's another one on the horizon, then um, we might be moving so fast that it's just not possible to uh, to upskill in time because traditionally what we've seen is um, the reduction of, of low-skilled labour and then time uh, to reskill for other kinds of low-skilled labour. But what we're seeing this time perhaps is the point of difference is that the low-skilled um, and medium-skilled jobs start to disappear uh, and there isn't really enough time for people to catch up and, and take on those highly skilled jobs. And so this is, I guess, this is where we get into sort of discussions about um, universal-based income and is it a practical, is it, is it affordable, uh, is it right ethically? Uh, so, yeah, it's going to be an interesting sort of 30, 40 years ahead for sure. Oh, definitely. And what what do you see blockchain's role in in this transformation? Well, there's, there's certainly a potential for a utopian future during the next century where we have uh, robots that sort of self-repair and uh, economies um, that are driven by uh, intelligences other than our own. Um, and maybe or maybe we don't uh, augment our own intelligence to keep up. But uh, that sounds uh, relatively dystopian uh, unless you factor in the opportunity for perfectly decentralized and equitable ownership of these of these resources, uh, of these uh, machines that really should be a public service and be publicly owned, and so we, we might have the opportunity to, to wind up in a um, you know a world of abundance, a future of abundance, if if everything um, falls uh, into place correctly, or, or more specifically, if, if we put the places uh, the pieces into place uh, correctly. Um, but that's just again one of one of many potential futures, um, and there are you know a thousand forks uh, along the way, and, and it could go either way if if we become um, unconscious passengers as opposed to uh, the uh, designing our future. You know, the stories that we tell are what create our reality. They're what create our, you know, our past, how we look back and understand things, how we understand what we're doing now, and also the stories that we tell about what we see for the future. And so a lot of what I try to do with my work and with this podcast is to provide those different talking and thinking points 
Uh, and one of the questions that I put forward to you when I contacted you initially was about creating micro moments in conversations. Uh, I see this as increasingly something that's becoming important. Is the way that we communicate online is becoming faster, shorter, and sharper. And I'm just wondering how the way that we're communicating now might evolve in the future and how this might become more important than big, large-scale messages or, or cults of personality or posturing and spin because there's this, you see, I'm seeing this fracture now and, I, and I'm just wondering how this might all play out. We have many different forms of communication with varying degrees of bandwidth, but ultimately, so far, they've all been very uh, narrow bandwidth communication mediums. And so, whether that's uh, written or verbal, as we're speaking now, these are all pretty narrow. I think there are certainly pros and cons to both. You know, when I think about uh, social media and Twitter, uh, I actually find it personally quite valuable because it helps it helps me distill my thoughts and, and crystallize them in a way that I would have never otherwise bothered to. So, quite literally, being able to to convey a message uh, in an incredibly um, narrow bandwidth environment uh, still, making, still makes it meaningful and, and uh, understandable. Um, that's quite a powerful tool to, to have as a communicator. But also, um, different cultures, uh, different geographical realities, some of these, some of these things are, off, are often uh, misunderstood or misconstrued or, or manipulated. Um, you know, I, I think, again, putting my, my futurist hat on and thinking far into the, the future, a potential reality here, and these technologies are already... Uh, already here, even if in their infancy, but we, we have the potential for a very uh, wide bandwidth communication opportunity in the future, which is to not have to really speak at all and be able to convey our, our thoughts and emotions uh, perfectly uh, between one another, almost almost uh, as if uh, you know, we, we'd invented uh, telepathy, which we, we kind of had um, through the world of IoT and, and uh, high bandwidth internet connections. But this is this is sort of an augmented self future, which, which um, may be... Uh, may be very real over the next sort of generation or so. Now that's interesting. So in that in that context, the way because of the way again that we tell stories now, if we remove if we remove uh, direct experience from that, you know, how will that evolve? I mean that's a really fascinating question. Well, a mid-term solution, I think, to try and uh, increase the bandwidth for conversations uh, and the meaning that we derive from these conversations, uh, I feel, is, is going to be uh, virtual reality. It's, it's what I like mm. to describe as, as uh, the ultimate empathy machine. If we can start to have people live moments of lives, uh, experiences of others, uh, even if only uh, temporarily and, and periodically, uh, this is going to be a catalyst for uh, the eradication of sexism and racism and discrimination of all kinds. Um, you know, we think about uh, immigration being a very sensitive topic in many places all around right now, but if, if you were able to, to, to live a moment in their shoes through their eyes and understand uh, what that existence is like, um, that's, a, that's a very, very powerful thing, and all of a sudden perspectives begin to change. Yeah, that's amazing. And then I'm just wondering how that would become incorporated into a decision-making process around policy. So, for example, if someone went to experience personally these hot topics or issues and then was able to make a decision via uh, voting or, um, you know, weighing in somehow, how would that influence 
what kind of drastic Absolutely. changes would we see? While we are years away from achieving uh, the quality of medium required to, to really convey those experiences in a way that are accurate and that will change opinions potentially, it's it's stuff that um, is important that we begin considering now. Really, it's it's, it's trying to think about how we leverage um, emerging technology to better analyse and disseminate information. How to generate experiences or predictions to help inform people's uh, decision making process uh, about potential futures. So, when you were talking about the ultimate empathy machine, can we just talk a little bit about empathy and how technology? is creating new spaces or new ways for us to connect and empathize. Facebook released a study recently, and of course it's, it's from the horse's mouth, so it's, it's really, I guess, hard to, uh, to validate uh, the legitimacy ultimately. But, but mm. the, the study that Facebook released was talking about uh, passive participation in social and other modern media is usually a detrimental factor in somebody's mental health. It tends to lead people towards... Uh, emotions um, and mental states of anxiety and depression. However, um, active participation uh, in this kind of new media uh, using these, these, these new technologies as uh, channels for communication can actually markedly improve people's uh, mental well-being. Uh, for me personally, that's, that's been my experience, um, to be able to share, to be able to educate and be educated, um, to be able to consume almost instantly very uh, diverse points of view from places all around the world, these have all been uh, incredibly important um, parts of my own uh, intellectual and, uh, and emotional growth. Um, it's, it's certainly a very different world um, to what it was even 10 years ago, but I think mm. ultimately we've, we've never gained so far. Um, you know, there are lots of problems with, with the world today and uh, technology is, uh, is the reason for some of it, but ultimately um, we, we've met down. We, we found ourselves in overall a better position um, than ever before, uh, thanks to modern medicine and science um, and, uh, and high technology. Uh, you know, we're, we're mm. in, a, in a safer world than ever before with lo- the lowest rates of homicide and uh, the lowest rates of terrorism, the lowest rates of child mortality, the lowest rates of disease. Um, so, so far, so good, and uh, we'll, we'll see what we get through uh, in the near future, I suppose. If you could ensure that people understood something, the importance of something that you're doing right now, what would what what is the most important thing that you would love for people to understand, or impart? The most critical thing that I that I always try and impart in these conversations um, is that we're ultimately in control of our own destiny as a species. That we are quite literally designing our future, um, but we don't have to be passengers of it and this is a really powerful concept especially when you start to uh, acknowledge and appreciate that uh, change is enduring, change is inevitable change is uh, it's forever I mean the only thing that remains constant is change um, and the moment that you start to think about change as opportunity um, instead of something to be feared, that's when your personal world really opens up and gives you the opportunity to actually positively influence everybody else's as well and so doing through through change as opportunity um, and understanding um, that everything in our world is created uh, from the seats that you're sitting on to the mobile devices we're speaking on. Uh, very end of complexity, of course, but this is all thanks to uh, human ingenuity. Uh, and when you break these things down into small enough pieces, including our smartphones, um, everything's not actually that complicated. Uh, sometimes how they come together is complicated, but we all have, we all have the opportunity uh, to create, uh, and even if we're not creating, um, just uh, being consumers, um, 
uh, using your wallet to, to vote uh, on, on what you think our future should look like and, and where you're happy uh, seeing it going and the kind of culture and values you have. Uh, there are many, many ways to, to influence the future, um, but the point very much is that, that we do. Uh, absolutely. This is not being thrust apart, past, uh, and it's in our power, uh, and it's our responsibility to create uh, the best futures uh, that we see for ourselves. Yeah, I think that's an amazing message. And just uh, just to follow up on that, why? what is the biggest barrier, do you think, that people have to understanding the amount of power that they have, the unprecedented amount of power that they have? It still seems to me to be a disconnect between what what people understand is possible and what is actually po- possible. We are incredibly uh, resilient, adaptable creatures, um, and no matter how wor- no, no matter how fast the world seems to change, uh, most people, generally speaking, seem to take it in their stride. And, and so, despite the fact if you were to take um, this smartphone back 15 years ago, um, or the internet back 30 years ago, and uh, show these people uh, of that time, which was just me as a small child even, um, it would seem quite literally um, like magic. And so I, I think people feel like passengers, they feel uh, almost helpless at times, um, because they forget how clever they've actually been even to um, come on this journey and, and adopt um, the opportunities for convenience um, and health benefits and social benefit um, that technology enables. So I think, I guess everybody um, coming to terms with the fact that we are pretty spectacular in that regard and it's through the application of uh, similar traits that we not only have to be uh, accepting of and using this technology uh, without necessarily batting an eyelid, uh, but whatever the next iteration of this technology is, is something that we can play a very, a very real hand in creating it ourselves. Oh, yeah, I, that's amazing. And if there was anywhere that someone should go to make have a better understanding of, of what what's available to them, do you have any places that you could suggest? So. Would that be a course? Would that be different uh, different meetings or? Um, look, I think again through technology we have this uh, quite incredible opportunity for uh, for, for self education. Um, you know, I dropped out of high school um, after teaching myself how to write HTML um, as a, as a as a tween, uh, in fact. And ever since it's been a matter of uh, continued curiosity and. and uh, technical uh, and intellectual exploration, uh, largely thanks to the internet. If the internet hadn't existed when I was 12 and 13, uh, my life would be incredibly different now. So I I don't necessarily think there is um, a course or a university um, that anybody needs to absolutely go to um, because most of the information, uh, assuming that you do have the the curiosity and the discipline to educate uh, yourself, then everything is right there for us uh, a few clicks away. Um, I'd, I'd highly recommend that everybody subscribe to Future Crunch, uh, an incredible newsletter which uh, is, um, I guess, thinking very, very differently um, about the news we should be thinking about, quite literally what is actually news, as opposed to uh, the drama that we see on our television news most nights, which uh, usually is more of a 24-7 fear cycle than it is a, a 24-7 news cycle. Um, mm. There are also lots of other great blogs 
uh, and uh, account from social channels such as Facebook, including Futurism um, and Science Alert. These are these are great places to get inspired um, about the positive state of the world and about how much better it can get um, if we uh, if we work together and if we understand um, better what the kinds of opportunities are that we can leverage as individuals and uh, as, as groups with mutual interests. So really, what we need is is just to stay naturally curious human beings. That's an absolute free word. Yeah. 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 So as long as we're curious and we're committed to exploring, we'll be fine. Yeah, that's right. Easier said than done, but yes, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Stories Create Me. Thank you to all my guests and... I'd also like to thank my sound designer, Kyle Barber Hoffman, for creating the magical sounds that you hear while listening. Join us next month when we'll continue to explore the stories that create our world on Stories Create Me.